When it comes to the auteurs of today's cinema, count Joshua and Benny Safdie in with A24 stable of bad boy filmmakers, such as Ari Aster, Alex Garland, Robert Eggers, guys who are ripping up the rules on big screen narrative and keeping it alive in an age when the indie theatrical space is constantly encroached upon by streaming. This season, the Safdie brothers, with their collaborator Ronald Bronstein, have crafted Uncut Gems, a pulse racing thriller based upon their connections to Manhattan's 47th Street Diamond District. The trio are here with us today on Crew Call to tell us how they hooked Adam Sandler to star in this project and finally launched it after several years in development. Let's begin with how all of you met. <laughs> the you know, you guys went to 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 BU. Well, we met uh, we met when he was born. I Benny met him born. when I was right. born. Many right, many, right, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> and and how and Ronnie went to well, and Ronnie went to NYU. Well, NYU. NYU. school. You know, I, I'm te- almost ten years older than these guys. I actually realized recently. I said to Ronnie two days ago. I was like, I, I, I dawned upon me that I met him i saw him leaving a like convention center mm-hmm. at the south or southwest festival when he had his film frownland there and i was there with a short film in 2007 i met him and i realized that he was you were 34 at the time mm-hmm. and and i realized that i'm 35 now and i was like and i thought to myself could i imagine a 23 year old filmmaker coming up to me and saying hey uh, I love your movie, and after we became like a, we had a friendship, and I saying to him, "Will you play a weird version of our father with two kids?" I don't know how I would react to that. And you said that to us yeah. ten years ago. Yeah, you're you're like, one day you, it's going to dawn upon you, and how weird that is. No, that like you look back at this time and you see like, oh, he was friends with somebody at that yeah, age. It, it <laughs> makes me look desperate and sort of predatorial, like an ankle bracelet. Or, you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah. They had, you know, Josh happened to, I would say, descend on me, you know, at a fairly good time because it had taken me like seven years to make that feature. And I barely just slithered across the finish line, you know, it was entirely bereft of maybe ideas, but definitely self-esteem and self-confidence. And there was no, I was bankrupt. You know, there was no, I was going to afford to pay for another one myself. I was not in any kind of position to go out and ask for money because I had stumbled onto a process that was entirely unscalable and I just didn't know what I was doing. You know, I was faking my way through the few meetings I had claiming that I was going to move forward and continue to do something without any real, like just, it was fraudulent behavior on my, on my behalf. And so him coming up and just, and just, uh, assaulting me with this idea because I didn't, I'd never acted before. I haven't acted since, you know, it wasn't like I was in my own, I did everything but act in, in my film. So, so, so the proposition, you know, to, to star in something he was doing made absolutely no sense. It really made no sense. You know, the only reason I did it was out of some sort of counterphobic, you know, it was like, wow, I have nothing going on. And, and if I don't do it, I don't well, like what I that mean, says I also, about But myself. I also think that I yeah. think this is this is what I, you know, we're lucky in the in the regards that we get to de- basically de- de- uh, design our lives mm-hmm. around the friendships that we deepen through work. And I think that that was also a huge part of it. We were becoming good friends in New York. He was a projectionist in New York. I remember going to see a projection of Wiseman's model mm-hmm. and we became friends. And, and a big, a big part of, of our lives is, is, is deepening the experience of life and through 
examining it through work. Mm-hmm. And and when you have a partner in crime like Benny and I had, we were now with extended that to Ronnie, we would we could get to mind life together. And and I think that I think the attraction of the three of us getting together, specifically on Daddy Long Legs, a film that we made uh, eleven years ago, uh, at this and point. went to Cannes. Mm-hmm. It was at Cannes, yeah. Uh, actually, I was just joking about this because Yorgos Lanthimos's Dog Tooth had the Saturday night slot at Director's Fortnight, and then he went over to the to Uncertain Regard, and we got that amazing slot, mm-hmm. and then we became good friends with Yorgos that year. And I, st- I said to my first friends, I just want to thank you because <laughs> you, we would have had a later slot if it wasn't for that. You know, you pulling out and going to the, the Fortnight, uh, the Uncertain Regard with your film. But but I but it was yeah, that film was was. Very important. It was our first movie and and our first movie collectively, and and it established a very interesting collaborative uh, uh, approach to filmmaking with with him as a performer, uh, working with him in a collaborative sense, bringing the writing that we had, and then and then we're expanding on that writing with him, and uh, and then all the way through the editing process, and it really laid the the, the grounds for a decade plus of of collaboration. Because yeah, you can't the the production was so kind of in, intense and insane mm-hmm. that. Surviving that together and then building upon it and creating something even bigger, and then also just not being afraid to tell the truth about everything. You know, I remember even in the edit, it was like, it was, there was something deep there where it was like, this isn't working, let's figure it out. And it was, was, that's, you can't fake that. Just, just a quick thing on Daddy Long Legs. When that first got into can, Mm -hmm. were you, I mean, were you shocked by this? You know, because oftentimes films have reps. Yeah. You know, you have an agent. Yeah. You're, you're you didn't good. do that. No, I remember in the beginning of of, of my career, I made a, a I had made a feature film prior to that that was kind of an accident, and it was I had no intention of anyone ever seeing it, and it really was an accident. It started off as a almost a commercial project, and then became this kind of living diary, and then that went to Cannes the previous year, and it was the closing okay. night at the Fortnite, and, and developed the, the relationship. And at the same time, I had made a short in college, and I sent it to them, t- not telling anybody. So I just sent the short, just like, hey, you never know. And he didn't then, even tell me that he I didn't tell him. But I then all of a sudden, one morning, I get a phone call about, oh, it got into the director's fort. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so insane. So I started trying to call Josh to tell him that I even submitted it. And then it was getting in. And then I got another call for him because he saw the same last name. And then I'm like, no, this isn't Josh. This is uh, Benny. And they're like, huh. And they heard like chatter in French in the background. They're like, are you related? And I was like, yes, we're brothers. And there was like a whole other more chatter that went on. But. And then we programmed the short and the feature that, that two, in 2008 at the Fortnite at the, as the closing night film, which, oh, was, wow. which was really, that was truly bizarre and truly, like I didn't, I remember this movie was, was a, it was like this strange, weird, open at the time diary thing. It was not supposed to be seen and now all of a sudden it's being seen in a large <laughs> way. Stick. And then we immediately, we didn't even take a second to even catch our breath. We immediately, the whole point was to make Daddy Long Legs. Mm. That first film was not the intention. It was an accident. So then we decided to... Um, we were in production on Daddy Long Legs before Pleasure even came out. Pleasure Being Rob even came out. So that when we got into... And there was a French co-finance situation. So when we got in, uh, of course, it's... you know, <clears throat> I remember it was in the pre-smartphone, all that stuff. You know, we, I remember you'd get a phone call and it would, the number would show up really strange because it's an international phone call <laughs> and you're kind of waiting for that call to either be told it's not getting in or it's getting in. So when you get, when it got in, it was a, you know, it was where we always wanted it to be. The French 
co co production. You know, so it was a it was it was it, but it was at the height of the recession, and it was 2009 in Cannes, and it was scary. You know, I remember the first sale was to an Iranian distributor, and I was just like, "What? What is their interest in this movie?" And like, <laughs> oh, we're going to retitle the film as Bad Jew, and uh, and uh, and we're like, "Well, I don't, we don't want to retitle it," but was, I'm joking. But they, but it was, but it was interesting to see the landscape you know, from a business point of view, because here we made this film that was our intent for a long time to make this movie. Uh, kind of mining the memories of our father and taking it through this uh, perspective of adulthood. But, th- but then at the same time, every movie we do make, we think is going to be the biggest thing that there is. You know, it's like mm. we're scratching an itch that everybody needs to have scratched. So when we go- went there, like, oh, everybody's going to want this thing. Mm. You know, it's exploring divorce. Fifty percent of the people are divorced in this world. You know, that's a big audience. You well, know? you when you when you make work in general, you kind of have this. You you think you have faith in humanity yes. and that we're all kind of connected in some mm-hmm. way so that if it interests you, it must interest other people. And it's naive to think mm-hmm. that, of course, but it's, it's, and that's why it's so earth shattering when you realize when you put something out into the world. And I do think that that movie did, did work. It just, you know, IFC didn't really release it. Um, but, uh, I think that, you know, when you, when you ever release something and you see, that's why I don't read reviews and things like that because all they do is they, they the good ones don't make me feel any better and the bad ones make me feel worse. So it's just kind of like, I just like, let, oh, I divorced yeah. myself from it because I don't want to feel lonely on this planet. And you see, like you put something that means so much to you oh, yeah. and, and, and you think that anyone will be able to relate to it. And then you find that people don't relate to it at all. I'm talking about earlier work. Then you're just kind of like, Oh wait, I'm alone on this planet. And it makes you feel like shit. Yeah. Um, the editing and the writing, Ronnie, tell me how that, how you got involved with, well, with them on okay well on when they asked me to perform and and daddy long was i i mean basically it, it was well okay you know i have like a probably an overdeveloped sense of em- embarrassment you know which would m- really limits my options as a as an actor professionally just because uh if i don't really have control over what i'm saying i feel i'm gonna be humiliated by the things that are coming out of my mouth and uh so it was that, yeah, I'll do it, but I, I want to control what I say. So automatically I'm brought into the writing. And then it just the, the rapport between us was so um, natural and, <clears throat> and productive that uh, uh, that, started, that started basically um, a writing partnership. You know, that's sort of... Which bled naturally into the editing process. Right. What happened was, so so I was like, all right, so now I'm part of the writing, but I had no intention of being, you know, part of the editing. I had edited my own work, so I know how to edit, you know, but it was, I think they got stuck. You know, once we were done with production, I was sort of out. Um, not sure what I was going to do next. And then they got stuck in the edit. Yeah, we had had a kind of group that we were like in that wasn't really helping in a way like pushing it forward so yeah and you know i had i had landed on my own approach to editing with um with frownland that was it was sort of like okay a movie is going to be as long as it is good and you know i'm not going to allow anything in the movie um that doesn't match whatever my standard of quality is no matter how essential that that scene or that line of dialogue is to the forward progression and completion of the narrative right if it's not good it's out and you know um once you start removing things on those terms you end up with a sort of broken device right it's um there's the narrative will not complete itself but there's nothing bad in the movie anymore so what you're forced to do is you're forced to then write new material that will connect and sort of fix this broken thing 
So, you know, um, so that approach to editing necessitates reshoots, right? Or I wouldn't call reshoots because you're not redoing anything. You're making new material that's going to make this new version of the movie work. So um, once they sort of got stuck with the edit on Daddy Longlegs, right? I mean, it's sort of that whatever my experience, whatever I had developed, you know, whatever process I had slept, walked into sort of came into play. And I was able to come in and we were helped to rearrange the footage and then devise new material that was going to allow this new iteration of uh, of the story to complete itself. And so, yeah, so I came on as an editor, not so much in a hands-on way, but in a conceptual way. Um, and then we did do some reshoots, and we did finish that movie. And yeah. we, so, again, that, that just sort of ju- you know sparked um, uh, the way that we work. And then just the, the follow-up to that film yeah. was always going to be Uncut Gems 10 years yeah. ago. So then we wrote... Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. I I remember this now. You you would you developed this a, de- a decade a ago. decade. Yeah. We started ago. we started this process ten years ago. Uh, Uncut Gems and we the the initial uh, you know draft or the initial concept of the movie was inspired. But our dad worked in the Diamond District as a basically salesman slash runner uh, for a character who was. You know, paternal in the sense that he took on a lot of outsiders and worked in the Diamond District, uh, and was a kind of a heroic guy, but also kind of maybe, you know, did things that, that were slightly unlikable, but lovable. Uh, so that it's very was very mythological. But the, way, yeah. St- yeah, mythological. The stories, though, were very pulpy and, and very, um, Mimetic in the sense that you you could sit down at a dinner table and or at a bar and you'd want to tell these stories because they were pulp and they were fun. So that's where that first draft kind of was like nostalgic in the sense of that without sentimentality, sentimentality, but nostalgic nonetheless. And Benny and I went and wrote that first draft, and then you know having the, having experienced an incredible collaboration with Ronnie on Daddy Longlegs, we naturally said we want you to read this, and he read that first draft. This is ten years ago, and then that then then became the you know then then became the writing collaborative process, and then we and, you know and then over the years you know couldn't the script either wasn't ready for a number of reasons it wasn't uh developed enough we didn't earn our rights you didn't earn have our financing to, to, so yeah. it's like okay if we don't have financing we'll move to something else and then we would just find yeah. another project we would stumble on, in yeah. through our interests and through our research in weird ways stumble into other projects a documentary about a basketball player a film based on a on a young woman who i discovered doing research in the diamond district and then adapting her memoirs with ronnie to do a to do a script about her own life starring her and then that project Rob Pattinson saw that film and then right. said I want to work with you whenever you're doing next I said we're doing this film in the diamonds you're not right for anything there uh, he's like okay well maybe let's just meet and we can figure out something else and you know wanting to keep mining and educate ourselves on pacing and genre and then that I, led I, to I, good time and, so so which which movie did did Rob see he saw heaven knows what okay and then, <laughs> and then we made we we were we were out in LA actually trying to do this big table read for uncut gems where we were like that was it we were finally going to parlay any momentum we had and heaven knows what into uncut gems that was the idea wow you know uncut gems really is our black opal mm. like if you've seen that was uncut the idea. Gems, every time we finished it was movie, our you know? thing it was our it was going to be what right. we were going to turn into a big windfall you know and and uh yeah and we ended up you know the when we realized that gems wasn't going to be was basically another 18 months out we realized oh if things aren't aligning mm-hmm. we turned to rob and we and we decided to to con- conceive something for him yeah from scratch and then you know with each project that we made along the way you know you develop you know certain whatever you develop muscles 
that then in turn, when you retroactively go back and look at where you were with gems, you realize you've sort of um, outmoded it. You know, so much of the material is no longer interesting to you or no longer meets your standards of quality because of the work that you've done. Well, you've you expressed know, it. Since. You've expressed it and you don't need to re-express well, it. Well, one great example is the Benny's character from Good Time was a, was a character that Ronnie and Benny developed for a project that Ronnie was going to do. Mm-hmm. Then that turned into a character in Uncut Gems, the script. Then we then it was in there got, for a while. It was in there yeah. for a while. And then we went and we, did Good Time. And then we started to write Good Time. We're like, well, we can use this character. And right, then brought so. him into the script there. But then you, you, then you, then you, this is awesome. Yeah. But then you yeah, don't need that guy <laughs> anymore in, good, in Uncut Gems. Right. Yeah. This is such an awesome myth- mythology. <laughs> um, after I saw Uncut Gems, I, I, I was telling Benny, it really spoke to me mm. um, because well, I used to live in New York in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And when I was getting my wife's engagement ring, I wound up buying at the end of the day from a friend of the family. Okay. But went down to, went, went to the 47th Street. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Literally, I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. There was a 13-year-old kid, <laughs> Hasidic kid, downstairs selling, trying to sell me diamonds. Look at this, sir. Look at this. Look at this. Knew everything. Yeah. Knew everything. He was saying, we were both taking each other extremely seriously. Yeah. And I'm thinking, why is this kid in school? <laughs> yeah. Then, he was in school. Just a different type of school. Yeah. And then there were other characters. Like, go up to Westchester in Mayapack. <laughs> there was a guy, there was a jeweler on Main Street who would stay open. His hours were like 5 p.m. to midnight Savant <laughs> into Lenny Effen Riefenstahl, wow, if weird. you will, <laughs> for characters. <laughs> then I was thinking, this is after seeing. What do you Uncle, mean he was into Lenny? He Riefenstahl. knew everything uh, about Lenny sure. Riefenstahl. <laughs> so it's a self hatred. <laughs> yeah. I, I can yeah. subscribe. No, he knew everything yeah. beyond playing in the room while you're buying your. Yeah, room. and then and then did not buy from him. Um, <laughs> and then it jogged my memory back to when I grew up in Vermont. My sister worked in a jewelry store. He was a Scottish guy. Place got broken into, <laughs> stolen. Yeah. How, mom? Why? Yeah. That's scary. And then later, <laughs> yeah. when I was mature enough, she told me, "Well, it was you know, yeah, it was an insurance, <laughs> insurance <laughs> for sure." <laughs> so that that was a great thing of how I I believe Sandler's well, I character. Think, well, yeah. Well, I mean, Sandler's character. We went out to Sandler in 2012. He, we couldn't get over the moat of celebrity, so we just couldn't even get to him. So he didn't even know about it. So it was a pass. Then I found out recently in 2015. I saw an email that was we went back to him in 2015 before we um, really we got deep in, into it. Actually, with Sasha Baron Cohen, but before we did, we were trying to go to Sandler again, and we were just told he's unavailable. It's like, well, what if we push it? He's like, he's unavailable. <clears throat> but there was Let's just say he's indefinitely yeah, unavailable. There was, there was something very important about Howard being like a lovable person you know you yes. had to really root for him because there were things that he was going to do that were going to test you but at the end of the day he had to kind of bring you into his world yeah so. but that world in general 47th street world is like throughout the years when we would do another project i would just take a stroll through 47 just to remind myself and the energy was palpable and you immediately feel it you have all these people selling the same merchandise but they all have different narratives that they're spinning around that mm-hmm. merchandise mythology mythalizing jewelry so there's like you have this spiritual element of these things, these shiny things that actually have value, quote unquote, that if you put them on, they can, you know, elate you you can elate yourself in some way. Uh and and you're and on top of it, you're having handshake deals. It's all cash. It's people of their name and of their honor. It's barbaric. Mm-hmm. And the energy is palpable. And it would be such 
a rejuvenizer after every project. I would be like, am I still interested in this on wow. a guttural level? Wow. And then I would call Ronnie or call Benny and be like, I still want to do it. I still want to do it. So it was this – it was great. It was kind of like a, an evergreen project. And that was so like, the basketball player, was that, was that a real thing? Yes. That's something that was there from the beginning of the script. But I mean a real ago. person oh, who came oh, in no, 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 took no. – <laughs> you no, know, so the, so, oh, so, no. so the project is fiction, yes. right? The pro- right. project through is fiction, uh, but it's it's you know like all of our work, we're using fiction to explore you know truth and and feelings. And, in and, our yeah, own and lives. the use of the real games is to kind of we we knew that that was going to help kind of make it feel more real. The whole story was going to feel viscerally more real because it's rooted in a reality of those games. Well, ever since I was a kid, I would I would you know tell lies, kind of tell these stories. I would go and I would tell them to the adults, and I would. And I would find that the stories wouldn't be plausible if I didn't have the details. So I would just start adding details and adding details and adding details. And I'm probably like, well, there's so many details. This must be true. So I feel like that was like an early seed to, you know, something like that where you have, where you have these details that are derived from real life. And you can't control them because they just exist. So if you start taking a real life you know, n- detail and nuance of someone's real life persona and imp- and surrounded with fiction, the alchemy is actually very strong and bare. And I think a, a, and and I think it forces you to start asking yourself but, questions. But like the, the 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 games in the script were not those games. You know, there was a good game, bad game, and a good game. You know, mm-hmm. so there were these ideas. It was something. Once we realized, oh, we can use these real games to heighten the ideas of the movie, that was an incredible Well, you have thing. a super concept, yeah. and then you try to exactly. look in real life to where does that, where could that fit? And it was very difficult from a writing point of view because, you know, it's not like a find and replace all. When you're like, oh, well, we're going to go after this player. Started with a different player in 2010. Then it was a, uh, it, it shifted to a different, uh, another star. We wanted to get more money in 2015. And then that took, the t- every time you change it, it takes weeks to change the script because wow. you're talking about a central character to the story who has who's kind of your and you're writing around their real life persona and that real life persona has their own motivations their own characteristics their own problems and their own motivations and you have to write that you have to write that into the themes and 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 the narrative of your script so even at the witching hour when we were about to shoot we had a uh, like it was started off with Amari Stoudemire and the motivation to him around the black opal was more tied to him being a black Jewish person. And, and that, that became, you know, that, well, that became also, adaptive. He the was, film. he was, he, there was, he had this amazing stretch with the Knicks and we love the Knicks. So it made total sense to kind of include that in the story. But so, but you can get into the spiritualism of, of that element, the religious spiritualism. And then at one point we shifted to Kobe Bryant at one point when we heard he maybe was interested in acting. And that was difficult because, you know, then you had to look at who he was and he's like, Oh, well, maybe it's the fact that he, we were going to use an aging Kobe Bryant. It would become this youth elixir. And, and, and then that kind of hit a wall. Then we ended up with Joel Embiid, who was a, who was a current contemporary player. And that became, you know, the, the themes there became obvious. He's an African player from Cameroon. He's interested in taking something that was removed from Africa, you know, and bringing it back ostensibly. And, and then wow. when the production shifted into the fall, we couldn't use an active player anymore. So then we had to go back to retire, recently retired players <laughs> and interview those. And then we landed, once we landed on Kevin Garnett, okay, now you start again, basically. You meet with him. Mm-hmm. You start taking from his personality. You start learning about who he is, who he projected publicly, and you start writing that into the script. Oh my so God. it's a very yeah. involving We're complicated. About hundreds of iterations of this script. Yeah. You know, wow. Because, <clears throat> I mean, all bespoke to the casting. Yeah. Every time it changes, every the script time. changes. Yeah. So, what's your process like? Are you? Is it? Is it just? Is it just shit? Uh, you're going to work on it one night and, and and pass the revision to him, you know? Or is it? 
it, it, it's hard to explain. It's hard to explain, and it involves, you know... Um, Anything and everything, maybe. <laughs> you know, aggressive argumentation. Um, uh, Very. Attempts to, attempts to thwart one another. Alliances. You know, all the time. I mean, <laughs> you know, there's a certain degree of like, a, I don't know, bug fuck layering to the work that comes from this sort of thwarting at all times because you know you have multiple viewpoints ever all three brains are descending on the work you know um conceptually right and and you know inspiration will come you know and you'll lay down the purpose of a given scene right but again since we're working on it over so many years you know a year later an entire josh may come up with another inspired idea that he wants to graft onto that scene and that inspiration might run counter to the original inspiration that laid the scene out and, you know, that made you devise the scene in the first place. And rather than run away from those contradictions, you know, there's an attraction to wrongness. Uh, that's a very loose term. But the idea of wrong, the idea of two things that shouldn't go together. I don't mean wrong in the sense of a character doing, making a wrong choice in a, on a level of text. I'm talking about something wrong, two ideas that... Uh, that that either invalidate one another or contradict one another or maybe uh, run counter to your aesthetic sensibilities you, or run counter to your intelligence. And and what ends up happening is there's a uh, – both of us have a kind of a perverse um, – we get a perverse thrill out of taking the wrong and seeing if we can make it right. Can you give an way. example from the film or a moment? I mean, there's so much all the way coming down to just even to the sound design, you know, in that um, in that uh, or the the score. I love think I'm trying to think of one example of that specifically that would work uh, that would. I mean, we would I'm trying to think of a specific example that you're saying that was something where you're you're finding your we came up with a concept. I'd come in and be like, I want to do this and then try to put it grafted into a, a scene and try to find a way back into it. Maybe the scene, one of the scenes was with Julia that got cut. I mean, there's a bunch. There's a, it's basically finding its way in a micro sense constantly throughout every scene. It's, it's there's also even the, the sense of like narrative propulsion, like this idea of uncut gems has a very dense plot. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot happening in it. Yes. And to us, we are so, uh, uh, we were so afraid um, of, of uh, 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 kind of being feeling naked and exposed when when na- when narrative propulsion or narrative in general exposes itself, we'd mm-hmm. feel like oh my god, this is this is bad. So the idea would be because life doesn't does, life doesn't unfold that way. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, you're you're doing something and things are just happening in a natural way. So that became a big uh, 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 that in a weird yeah, way. There are things that were added to purely narrative well, scenes I'll, I'll, to kind of make it not feel like it's just narrative. Or, you know, or think about you know spending a few years on multiple versions of this, you know, multiple drafts on this film and just like deeply, deeply getting yourself on the frequency of making this New York film set in the Diamond District. And then one of us says, oh, I want to open in Ethiopia, right? I mean, it seems so out of (laughs) whack with the frequency that we've been on in terms of just getting very, very deep. Rather than know. just beginning on 47th yeah. Street. Okay, there okay. you have it. So yeah. now, so now it's like, okay, the first instinct, especially, you know, is to say no, 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 you know, but then it's like, oh, wait, there's something so wrong about that. Not only are we going to make it right, we're going to make sure that we find a way to conceptually massage it mm-hmm. 
into the film. And right? the opening and once credits. Once you find that conceptual yeah. Yeah. thread, yeah. well, then, yeah, then we have that idea of Africa. And then, you know, you know, my father has colon issues. I get a colonoscopy, you know, mm-hmm. runs in my family. And then suddenly it's like, oh, I'm at the, um, you know, I'm getting a colonoscopy for the first time. And I talk into the doctor and I find out in conversation with him that, that colon issues are uh, are very are sewn into Jewish DNA. <laughs> that Jewish genetics, you know, are more inclined to develop colon cancer, you know, than other sort of genetic pools, right? Now it's like, oh, okay, how can I get this? Now suddenly, Africa, a colonoscopy. And the Diamond District are all sort of seamlessly yeah, sewn together. It. And now that they're all in the movie, and let's say, hopefully, if done correctly, it all, again, they all flow rather seamlessly and they're all tied together conceptually in a way that is sort of bulletproof. But if you think about um, div- ar- arriving at those ideas separately, you know, and, and the process that it takes to make them work, you know, if you back up and look at it or even squint at it, they're all wrong. They don't belong together. And there's a, there's a great satisfaction in taking the wrong and making it right. Well, I think that I, th- I think also just side note. I remember when we sent when we when we changed that uh, introduction to uh, the, the to the script and we sent it to Rudin for the first time. We were joking about he didn't couldn't see it coming when we said we're going to have the star open in Africa, uh, and because the first iteration opened in the 15th century, yeah. and we were going to do this whole you know the moment in Ethiopia so for when, a very long when time. there was a mass conversion <laughs> of Jews to to Christian to Christianity and and uh, and then it went to Africa. and then it went to modern day. It was like there was like so many beginnings, and then yeah. we were just wondering like what is Rudin going to think when he opens up the new draft and he sees 1492? Yeah, <laughs> and, and, yeah, and there's like a young Ethiopian boy just like with his bare hands like grabbing a roasted chicken off of a spit and burning his hands and you're like wait okay we're in like Conan <laughs> now. he well, loved it saying, he loved like, it he loved yeah. it but there, there's an idea of a wrong idea that was discarded yes. you know it did not integrate well, it was, but I think but, also like I, I had I didn't I don't see this I don't I don't understand the concept of wrong in general all I know is right um, so that's general thoughts but i remember when we when we premiered the film in toronto mm-hmm. uh we had most of the cast there i'd say 90 percent of the cast was there at least the, the principal cast and someone came up to me afterwards and they were like i'm looking at the entire cast up on stage and i'm thinking this just seems wrong like mm-hmm. how do all these people overlap mm-hmm. but it also just feels right at the same time yeah. and and i don't and that's what it is what that comes from is the, the casting process is so huge Sorry, you want no, to no, no. Go ahead, go ahead. The casting go, go process ahead. is is so you know, casting is is writing and is editing and is is production design. It is mise en scène. It is everything, and and it's such a big part. I mean, that's where documentary is. That's where the idea of documentary invades every mod, every huge movie being made in Hollywood. And because you're you cannot change the DNA of somebody. And you put them in front of a camera on some documentary element, you're capturing well, who that person is. There's something very exciting about like once you have it down, the the fear is that you're it will die there. And you it constantly needs to be rebirthed, you know? So you have these casting these 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 actors or these not first time actors who are coming in and they're so inspiring that you know that they're going to bring and breathe so much life into this. Like Julia, she was a she's a designer. So Julia, we 2014, 2014, we um we went to we I met with her out actually in California and I said, "Hey, I want you to read this script because I kind of was like a fan from afar of of her persona. Uh she was an artist, she was um uh, uh the clothing designer, she was just a character 
And uh, she read the script. She's like, are you spying on me? And I said, no, it was just pure coincidence. And uh, and then we screen tested her early on opposite Sandler. And, and you know, she was electric. Francine Maisler and well, Rudin were just together, like, this is like special. Unspoken. And she's just the character. You know what I mean? And and knows, like Kevin Garnett, knows how to use her persona to get what she needs in life. So that was the character of the movie. Uh, someone who can can play with their perception and and and, and take advantage of that. But there's, there's and also... She, but she, and then once we, you know... We, we showed that screen test to, to to the powers that be, and there was a desire to go out and and see the stars and if if this film was a bigger movie, if what that would look like with a bigger name in that part. And we looked at every working incredible actor that's where and people some some of them were great, some of the people were missing the boat because some people were had heard about this podcast that we did with Julia, and she was the inspiration. So they're trying to do an invitation of Julia, uh, but it was oh but God. but the reality was is it was Julia all the time, and and what but what, what all those auditions did do is inform the writing because when you see someone do it wrong. It exposes all the warts of the material. And, so then you go back and you actually rewrite all these. And there's, there's oh actually, my god! Yeah. There's actually. I mean, it's, everything is helpful. There's, everything. There's is something helpful amazing. When like when you have when you have like a first time actor who comes in, you'd think, okay, they're going to be so worried performing opposite like a big actor, and there is that there. But then you have the actor coming in thinking, oh my god, I have to perform against this person who really knows that world. So the two people end up competing with one another and creating this kind of interesting alchemy to that. Just the insecurity, yeah, the insecurities work you know, to your advantage. And the goal is to kind of create an environment on the set where there's an openness to allow that to be there, and that just breeds excitement. Right, and then and then you know ultimately you know when you loop back to the writing and all the work that we do into the writing, it's ultimately like a very self-effacing um, <clears throat> process because the goal is for them to get on the set with the cast and and make it feel like it's. It's being written in real time while it unspools in the camera and uh, covering up any writerliness from the movie so that you can't feel that work that mm-hmm. we've done, you know, and there and the casting exists in order to do that, in order to to to, you know, to keep the um, the ideas in the script from sort of calcifying over. And our script is 160 something pages. You know what I mean? It's a lot. It of, should have been a lot three, of dialogue. over three and a half hours. I mean, and that's but. why you want like a veteran comedian like Sandler because he can take unbelievable. He can take three and a half hours of material and perform it every night. So he can look at a two page monologue. And that's and the way we write it is we write it as if we're making a documentary. So we try to write this nuanced dialogue that is just filled with so much, you know, personal interruptions and asides, and it reads kind of crazy. I mean, we just had to polish it up for WGA submissions. I'm just reading the script. I'm just like amazed at at, at the at all the little things that you well, think Sandler improvised. Going back to Sandler, mm-hmm. how did you finally conquer him? How did you finally was was Rudin well, key? Good time and Rudin. It was it was the work. Good time. We were at Cannes with Good Time and Meyerowitz was there as well. And uh, okay, I do I do remember like after we we after we met with him we did was it in it was well, it no in no Cannes? we didn't meet with him he didn't we tried to set a meeting in Cannes and he was there with his wife and he's a barely he's a, a real mensch and he's an incredible person who has a who's a real guy and he was like I'm in the south of France with my wife and I'm here to celebrate my movie I'm not taking meetings 
says, I'm not here to do business. I'm here to celebrate a movie that I worked on, which is beautiful. So we didn't get a meeting. And then, uh, um, and then about a few months later, he saw a good time, responded to it. And then immediately called us and was like, I love this. What are you working? I was like, we have a script that we've been trying to get to you. I'm sending it to you now. Immediately responded to the script and Rudin was, Rudin was instrumental in, and in telling us, okay, this is a big movie star. Yes, he's responding to the work. You get on a plane tomorrow. And you fly and you meet him and you talk about it because and I was like and I was yeah. thinking to myself like I've heard about these stories of mm-hmm. people getting on planes and flying to meet a movie star. I'm gonna be one of those and people. It was, and it was, you it was, know what I mean? It that was, was a, like because at first like there were certain things in the script maybe that Sandler would like. Oh, I don't know if I want to be seen doing that. And the whole point of us going and coming here to 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 LA to talk to him was. We want this to be a collaboration with you. We want you to feel comfortable in the same way that we did with you and Daddy Longlegs, you know, where you need to feel a part of this, that it's you're okay saying and doing all this stuff. Otherwise, it won't work. And what was his take? In general? Yeah. His, his general take was at first he's like, this guy, Howard, I don't like him. I lo- I, I, he's funny. And he's fun, but I, he's doing a lot of stuff that's kind of deplorable. Like, I don't really know – like, you guys are saying you love him. He's a hero to you. And he wanted to know why. And then when we started to get into that with him, this guy is – he's a – first of all, he's very egalitarian. Everyone is an equal – everyone at any point can be a partner in crime with him. Mm-hmm. And and he's a dreamer and he's dreaming huge. And and I think that the the Jewish element, this idea mm-hmm. of of trying tough, to – trying yeah. to uh, – acquire as much as possible through materialism to ascend to be able to feel like he belongs and basically to let people know like you know fuck you for doubting me he says this in the script there's the dialogue that's written from these conversations with him fuck you for doubting me i'm gonna prove you wrong Mm -hmm. because you know for going far as back as time there's been a lot of doubt you know so you have to prove yourself and i think these things this idea of man against you know Fate in a weird way was very started to become very attractive and like started to talk about Rodney Dangerfield about people who are always on you know that idea of someone who's always on and what does it look like when they do turn off you know that these characters Al Goldstein these were the things that started to really be attractive to him and also you know whatever in in terms of those misgivings that he did have upon you know initial read of the script again this was a very you know the process is so collaborative once we all got together and did a table read you know. His connection with the character was deep enough that as he was making suggestions for things that he wished the character was exploring more deeply on screen, we're writing new material around those suggestions. So he actually helped. Like if he's getting divorced, he's like, he's got to care about those kids. You know, there has to be something that shows that. So, So, you know, so it's, you know, it's not a question of, you know, uh, writing new material in order to please a a performer and make, Mm -hmm. you know make the part more attractive to a bankable star. It's not like that. It's that at that point we're already collaborating on mm-hmm. a very deep level on the on the project and I'm, and we're taking his thoughts on the character very seriously. And he said to us in the beginning, I want to make your film. Mm-hmm. This isn't I'm not producing this. I want to make your movie. I don't want you to make my movie. Same thing that Darius Kanji said to us. I want to make your film. So it was but at but like Benny and Ronnie are yeah. saying is, you know, this is a collaboration. And I think that his his attempt his thoughts had nothing to do with like softening the edges, dulling the edges of the thing. It had not and he in fact it was the opposite that it was more a, a, a sincere place like well what is my character why is my character feeling this and then you start to get into it and you're like oh we do love this guy mm-hmm. because he does have these weird soft areas 
And we need to explore those more. So it started, you know, he did broaden the movie in a way, just through, A, through his celebrity, but, uh, but also I think through what makes Sandler so unique is that he is this kind of, uh, um, He's this lovable person, and I think that's a huge tribute to his to his success. Is that people do love him because they want to root for him because he's always up against it. You know what I mean? He's always able to make and that. He always, feel ground, real. he always grounds yeah. the most absurd situations. You know, he has that ability in in life and in his movies. How did you direct him? Is it was it simply hey higher lower or were, were it's there, a, no no the conversation is such it, it's so. Um, uh, whack, whacked out in a weird way because it's it's just an open conversation all the time, and you can he is like a he is a mechanical performer. You can say at this moment you go to a B personality and then you come down to an A personality because Howard is an A B person, right? And he right. could function in that way because mm-hmm. he is he think about it. He does three and a half hours. We movie benefited from him doing a fifty city tour, you know. Three and a half hours every night. So he has the ability to be like, ooh, that joke isn't working because I'm inflecting this word as opposed to this the, word. Yeah. So you can give him direction like that. And and we did do that. And sometimes you speak more broadly. Sometimes it's all about just getting into a wow. mood and a vibe it's and a, letting yeah, him also, run with that vibe. Yeah, it's yeah. also creating with the actors around him a certain vibe and having it run off of that, you know, telling this person, okay, come in hot this way. And then Sandler has to just deal with that, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of that kind of play that hand and uh yes i can't even get into the mindset of what is yeah because there's i mean i'm you know watching these guys there's direct direction and indirect direction you can say that you're directing him simply by letting the 20 some odd uh background people that are in a scene with him all talk and all be mic'd at once even though none of those people are talking to him directly in the context of that scene just like creating noise Mm -hmm. so that he can exist in an environment right and not um and not feel artificial in that environment. It's yeah, it makes the editing yeah. makes the editing oh, of the movie very difficult, yeah. and the sound design. But it's also those challenges are even better because yeah. if you can if you well, can conquer then, yeah, them, again, all of a sudden you have a again you have all these real situations grounding the material. Right. So you that bleeds into how a viewer watches the movie. I mean, yeah. I think Lakeith Stanfield and Sandler when they have their early exchange in the showroom, you know, yeah. again there's other twelve extras who are just having full volume conversations in a kind of a small a small set. It was on our stage. I remember the first time and, we're like. And, on the set, like no, 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 no quiet. <laughs> Never say quiet on the set. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't say action just because I feel self conscious well, saying. You know, it. When is it going to start? Feel- you know, people are already in the motions. You, don't, you just want to let it. Happen. So you, but I think they felt very. It's very liberating to be like, oh wow, I get to have this private conversation, and it actually feels private. So I, I just want to talk without spoiling anything. Mm. The ending uh-huh. in general. Okay, it could have gone either of one or two ways, and I'm thinking. Just from a viewer's standpoint, mm-hmm. Milch, David Milch said to me years ago, uh, when he was doing, when he was doing, um, Deadwood, he was like, never write to whatever pleases your audience. Mm-hmm. Like, y- y- mm-hmm. it's, it's about the narrative. Like, don't, don't do something because it's going to make the audience happy or it's what they're expecting. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, um, the other thing he said just in the same sentence was, Never write like when you're dealing with someone, say like a Carl Rove or a Dick Cheney. Mm-hmm. You never write them in such a way that they're evil with yeah. a slant. You write them. You have to write them yeah, from a personable place. From yeah, yeah from from a balanced, scaled mm-hmm. sense of place. But but about was there ever any concern of okay if we take this turn 
with the ending, we're going to upset some people. And if we take this term, this turn, no, it's no. too easy. No, no, no. no. Uh, the, 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 honestly, the, the personal hack for ourselves has always been if you know your characters, that's you, if you know your characters, the narrative writes itself. And that's happened so many times with us. We've been stuck in a hole, but you really know these people. And what they will do next is determined by who they are. And and that's really who you're writing for. You're writing for the characters and their real lives or the quote unquote real lives. So, I mean, we never, you know, there, you know, the, I don't want to talk about, obviously it's tough yeah, to talk right, about the ending. Right, and, right. And, and I don't really want to talk about the ending. But I was just curious if there but, was ever yeah. ways on your mind like, oh shit, if we go this way. No, no. no, I, no I think, I think the general, the, ge- the movie's called Uncut Gems, right? Yeah. And Uncut Gem is something that is, that the beauty is, has to be discovered on the inside. And there are these things that are, that are judged from the outside and deemed in, unvaluable, invaluable, uh, unvaluable, uh, or ugly. And, and, you know, the movie is filled with uncut gems in human forms. There are people who might have rough, uh, rough on the outside appearances. They might be, have, do things that might be slightly unlikable. But when you dig down deep, uh, uh, you get to something that is beautiful and, and therefore of value. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the ending of the movie literally and figuratively does that. Mm-hmm. And I think it does that through the, you know, the actions and the loud gestures that we and, that we. And, and it's on. not, you know, it's not like a binary, you know, well, do we want to make the audience feel good? Do we want to make the audience feel bad? Which is maybe a little bit how you're how you're posing it. It's, you know, it's more generous than that because it what is going to give the audience the most fulfilling experience, you know, in keeping with the particular set of conceptual semaphores that comprise of this project 